All right, as those offering baskets are being passed, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. And if you are a guest with us, um, we have been walking through the book of Genesis for a while now. Today is going to be our last time in Genesis um, for a little while. We're going to take a pause and we're going to look at some Advent passages of Scripture to prepare us for the Christmas season starting next Sunday. And then we'll look at the Word and prayer as a launching into the new year. And then we'll jump back into Genesis chapter 20, um, middle of January. But for today, if you have been tracking with us, we come to a very familiar but often misunderstood passage of Scripture. And if you're not familiar with this passage, uh, get ready. Um, This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Happy Thanksgiving! <laughs> yes, I, uh, I was talking to Pastor Paul a couple weeks ago, and he said, hey, because of all the baptisms, we're going to do a devotional um, that Sunday and not look at Genesis, and so it's going to push us back in Genesis one extra week to Thanksgiving weekend, and so you get to preach on Sodom and Gomorrah, and I was like, yay, happy Thanksgiving to me. Um, and so immediately some sermon titles started coming to mind, things like Thanksgiving on Fire, So if you had a burnt Thanksgiving turkey, uh, you might identify with that. Or awkward Thanksgiving family dinner conversations. If you're not familiar with this, we're going to get into Lot and his daughters. Or my favorite, pass the salt. So (laughs) there you go. Uh, Now, we can be tempted to trivialize the story to take away the brute force of it. And that's what many in our culture do. We, We often see Sodom and Gomorrah as just this fairy tale as something not to be taken seriously, as something not even really to apply to us. But this passage is weighty and it's important. And in fact, it's ref- this story is referred to time and again throughout the scriptures. So the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Zephaniah, you move forward to the New Testament, the apostles Paul, Peter, and John in the letters, plus Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, and the most importantly, Jesus himself refers to this account multiple times in the books of Matthew and Luke. And so if we are to be people of God's word, then we must understand why this account is so much repeated throughout the scriptures. But if I'm, uh, if I'm, if I'm honest with you, sometimes we can tend up swinging in one direction or the other when it comes to a passage of scripture like this. And so for some of us, we can swing so far to the side of fire and brimstone sort of preaching, right? So God is a God of justice. He will judge all sin. Holding up picket signs. God hates fill in the blank. You are going to hell. There's absolutely no room for compassion. No room for mercy, no room for patience, no room for help for those who are stuck in sin. We can swing that way. Or I think a lot of us in our culture today, we can swing the opposite way and say, God is not a God of justice. That's a God of the Old Testament. God is a God of love. And so in the end, love wins. You can really do whatever you want. I mean, God's just going to sort of look over your sin. He's not going to really hold you accountable. So we can swing that side. And in fact, even in my own soul, there's temptations to swing depending upon the situation. So if someone sins against me, oh, I want justice. 
if I sin against someone else or, or someone close to me sins against someone else, what do I plead for? God, show your mercy. But God is not a God of schizophrenia. He doesn't swing back and forth just sort of haphazardly, sometimes displaying justice, sometimes displaying mercy, arbitrarily. No, God is consistent in his character. He is a God both of justice and of mercy. And we're going to see this morning that these two attributes of God are inextricably linked together. They aren't competing against one another. They are complementing one another to display the full character of God. God is a God of justice. He must absolutely righteously judge sin and any rebellion against him. But God is also a God full of mercy. He shows compassion on those who are completely undeserving of it. And so we're going to see these two attributes of God tied together. C.S. Lewis, he says this. He says, mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. That's the important paradox. As there are plants which will flourish only in mountain soil, so it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. And so this morning, may we behold God, in all of his manifold wisdom, as he displays his justice and his mercy through the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So today's sermon title is not all those crazy sermon titles. It is simply Justice and Mercy. Let's prepare our hearts this morning by praying and asking that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, we praise you this morning that you are a consistent God in your character, that you are a God of justice, that you hate sin because it goes against your very character, and yet you also are a God of incredible mercy. As Lamentation says, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So may we see this morning the incredible display of both of these beautiful attributes. God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got a pretty long passage of Scripture. It's about a chapter and a half. That's why I didn't ask anybody to read that whole passage. And so we're going to divide up um, our story this morning into four scenes. And in each scene, we're going to look at a key way that God calls us to respond to his justice and his mercy. And so the first scene is found. We're going to start at the end of what Pastor Paul read last week. And I'm just going to call this the intercession. And the key word is pray. So let's look, starting in verse 19. This is God speaking to Abraham. For I have chosen him that... He may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, I think we could fill that in there, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there, meaning the the angels who were with 
Abraham earlier in the story. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, not let the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. The answer, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, Pastor Paul is going to talk more about this passage of Scripture when we look at the word and prayer in January, but I want to make a few observations this morning. So after Abraham had dined with God and he talked with God, now here atop the mountain, excuse me, after he walked with God, now here atop the mountain, he talks with God face-to-face, as Pastor Paul talked last week, as a friend, And when the judgment of God is revealed to Abraham, it leads him as the friend of God to pray. And this is not just any kind of prayer. This is what we would call intercessory prayer. It's prayer on behalf of another person to receive the mercy of God. And we see Abraham here, he's moved with deep compassion for not only Lot, his nephew, who's now in Sodom, but for all the people of Sodom. He pleads with God to show mercy on the entire inhabitants of the city. Like Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the people like sheep without a shepherd, so Lot is moved with compassion and he pleads with God, Oh God, please show your mercy. You see, Abraham, the friend of God, had now become a friend of men through his prayers. And I'm convinced that you and I will not pray for a person until we are moved with compassion over the devastation of God's judgment that is coming down upon them. And this compassion leads Abraham to pray boldly. He prays perseverantly, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. He perseveres in his prayers. He's like, God, please show your mercy. Just like Jesus in the, in the story of the, of the unrighteous king. And he says, hey, there's this widow. And she, she begged of the, the king to show mercy. If that unrighteous king will show mercy because of the pursing prayers of this woman, so will your father who has compassion on his people. 
And Abraham, he, he persevered in his prayers because he had a deep compassion upon the lost and those who were stuck in sin. But he also prayed humbly. He says, I'm but just in ashes. And we see here that as much as he understood his own compassion for the people, he even understood more about the character of God. He knew that, that it wasn't his own character that led God to, to show compassion and mercy. It was the very character of God. That's what he was pleading. What does he see in verse 25? He says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Far be it from you, God. This is, this is your character that's at stake. See, Abraham knew that the God was not malevolent or capricious. He was consistent in his character. God cannot and he will not do any wrong. He not only judges justly sin, but he also displays mercy upon those who are in great need. And how did Abraham know this? He didn't just know this sort of abstractly. He knew this personally. He was in Egypt following after sin, running fast away from God. And God in his mercy plucked him out. He says, God, just as you've been merciful to me, would you please also be merciful to Lot and to his family and to all of Sodom? There's a story of Hudson Taylor that I was reading. Uh, I read a biography of him about 10 years ago. And it's a, it's, um, he's, a, he's a missionary to China, if you're not familiar with him and his story. And he just had such a compassion for those who were stuck in sin and in darkness. And anywhere and everywhere, he wanted to share the good news of Jesus that, yes, God is a God of justice and he judges sin, but also God displays mercy to those who look to him. And uh, I remember reading this one particular story and being struck by it in a very negative way. Uh, you see, Hudson Taylor was on a boat. He was with another man who was on that boat as well, and he felt compelled to intercede for this man. But he also felt compelled to share the good news of Jesus with this man. But he didn't. And the boat sort of started to, to jostle, and eventually the boat ended up leading this man to fall overboard into the waters, and he ended up drowning. And I remember reading his journal entries, and, and Hudson was so distraught over the fact that he didn't share the good news of Jesus with this man that it almost led him to a place of depression. And I remember reading that story and being like, Hudson, you don't know the sovereignty of God. You don't know that God is the one who saves, not man. But in reading this passage of Scripture, I think that it was I who got that story wrong. Hudson knew the character of God. He knew that God used his prayer to accomplish his purpose and to rescue the lost. Fast forward to 1929. What does it say? So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which God, Lot had lived. So yes, God is sovereign. But God sovereignly used the prayers of his people to rescue the lost. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, If sinners 
be damned. At least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. I'm so convicted over this passage of Scripture my failure to pray and intercede for the lost. But I know that there are some of you who persevere in your prayer for the lost and those who are stuck in sin. We get little prayer cards from you as elders, and I so appreciate your faithfulness. Don't lose heart. But for those of you like me who have been convicted over this, would you please intercede on the behalf of those who you know who are lost and who are stuck in sin? Because of God's justice and mercy, would you plead on behalf of them? First Thursday prayer is this Thursday. If you want to take a step in the right direction, what invites you to come where we fast during our lunchtime, starting at 1130. We pray for our missionaries who are in lost places, broken, dark places. We pray also for local outreach opportunities, and we pray for our friends and our neighbors, for our family members who don't know Christ. Join with us in praying for the lost. We must pray. Darkness had fallen and the two angels arrived in Sodom for its final black night. And we're going to move to scene two, the rescue. And the key word here is flee. Flee. Starting in verse one. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. The last time we saw Lot, just remember... The past, Lot first looked out over Sodom and he said, I want that land. And so Abraham moved the opposite direction. And it says at the end of chapter 13 that Lot had moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then chapter 14, he was dwelling in Sodom. And as we saw, Abraham earlier rescued Lot and the people of Sodom later. But here, no, instead of fleeing from Sodom, Lot is sitting at the gate of Sodom. This is a plate of prestige, a place of prestige. This is a, a place of notoriety. He's a prominent man. He's either a chief magistrate or possibly even the mayor of Sodom. He fulfills in the opposite direction what Psalm 1 tells us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. No, he has, he has walked, and then he has stood, and now he is seated. Now, it's possible that he might have wanted to influence Sodom for good, but it's also more likely that he had been pulled in by Sodom and he couldn't get out. And like Abraham in chapter 18, Lot pulls out the red carpet as best as he can for these travelers. However, it's quite different here. Everything seems to feel rushed. Instead of the angels relaxing and resting under a tree and waiting for a big meal of the best breads with fine flour and curds and milk and a fattened calf. Instead, here, Lot must quickly escort the men inside. 
They've got to eat unleavened bread because it, has, it doesn't have time to rise. And he tells them, you must be on your way before daybreak. Lot knows the tragedy before and knew it might happen again. But what is this tragedy? We'll move on to verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called a lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, meaning the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. And we're going to talk about Lot in a second, but first, let's just examine what's going on in Sodom. The city from youngest to oldest, all the people, it says, to the last man were just so full of depravity. We get the idea that this rebellion had not just been happening for a little bit of time, but for over a long period of time. Remember back to Genesis 13 where it says that the people were wicked and they rebelled against God way back then. And it's continuing on and it's getting worse. There's a couple of prophets that look at what's going, really going on in the, peop- in the people of Sodom and their hearts. First Jeremiah 23. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers. No one turns from evil. Ezekiel chapter 16 Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. God created us to love him and to love others, to display his love outwardly to those around us, just like God does. But instead, the people of Sodom were full of self-love. They had turned their love inward to get whatever they wanted, no matter the cost. And so they turned to sexual immorality. They turned to homosexuality. They turned to rape. They turned to greed. They turned to oppression of the poor and needy. They turned to violence at every opportunity. They were so full of themselves. They were corrupt through and through. That means to be so destroyed that it turns you from the inside out. It's just full of evil. This was a mob-like pool of wickedness that was destroying the city and all around from the inside out. And it led to an outcry against Sodom that God heard. And we get the idea here that this outcry was, was not just outside the city, but even within the city walls. Possibly even Lot was crying out to the Lord. Even the unrighteous people knew that this was wrong, and they wanted help. They wanted 
justice. Nahum Sarna, in commenting about this passage, says, The cries against Sodom connote the anguished cry of the oppressed, the agonized plea of the victims for help in the face of some great injustice. The sin of Sodom, then, is heinous moral and social corruption and arrogant disregard of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the suffering of others. So the question is not, why would God judge this city but how could he not? This would be the most unloving, unmerciful thing that he could do. You see, God had showed great patience in waiting for repentance. But now he had to remove this culture and disease of self-love so that it would not infect anyone else around. Corruption so filled their hearts that it just leads to every kind of immorality possible. And so Michael Reeves puts it this way. He says, God's anger is how the God who is love responds to evil. Like God's holiness, his wrath is not something that sits awkwardly next to his love, nor is it something unrelated to his love. God is angry at evil because he loves God must show justice upon unrighteousness and wickedness and godlessness. What about Lot? How does he fit into this story? It seems that Lot is also stuck in the sin of Sodom, and yet there's something within him that knows that this is wrong. On the one hand, he's trying to pull the angels in before he even knew that they were angels. He just knew that they were traveling men. And yet on the other side, he offers his daughters. And there's, there's just a conflicted sort of soul. And I'm so confused when I look at Lot. What's going on? And thankfully, God doesn't leave us there. He gives us an interpretation of this passage in 2 Peter chapter 2. It says, He, meaning God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So Lot is tormented in his soul, and yet he can't flee. He's so stuck in his sin. R. Kent Hughes says this. He says, Lot was a conflicted soul at the same time both offended and allured by Sodom. He liked the prosperity, the comforts, the culture, and the prestige, but he was worn down by the filthy lives of lawless men and perpetually tortured in his righteous soul by the deeds he saw and heard. Now, how, how could he be considered righteous? I think this is really confusing for most of us, right? Lot, you offered up your daughters. I don't understand Well, Lot is righteous the same way that Noah and Abraham were righteous before him. The righteousness of God that's credited to his account. Hebrews 11. Look at what God says about Noah. Verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And as we know, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So even though there is a very small, small seed of faith in Lot's soul, yet it has been credited to him as righteousness. 
righteousness. That is good news for us who are stuck in sin. Now, granted, Noah's righteousness is definitely higher than Lot's. Abraham's righteousness definitely higher than Lot's. And yet somehow, Abraham's preaching of the gospel to his nephew somehow took at least a little bit of root in Lot's heart. And I wish it could say things like, oh, well, that's just, that's just Lot. That's not me. I would never do that. At least Lot here is conflicted in his soul over the sin that he sees around him. So oftentimes I'm not. So oftentimes I just turn a blind eye or even participate in the sin that God rebukes. But for Lot and so for so often a lot of us, we don't flee from sin. And the tentacles of sin so capture our hearts that we can't break free. John Owen warns us. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Don't give in to the lies of the enemy that says that your sin is not a big deal. I'm sure Lot at the beginning of his life didn't think that he would come to this place. But sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin until he is so stuck in his sin that he sees no way of getting out. But thankfully, Lot's sin does not stop the rescue of God. Verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. He's so steeped in sin that they're like, What are you talking about, justice of God? Continue on. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Flee. Run. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. It's not a little one. My life will be saved. What an idiot. (laughs) But what does God say? Through the angel... He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. We're going to see that in a minute, God gave Lot what he wanted. But God, because of the prayers of Abraham, rescued Lot. Lot. It's amazing when you see, I mean, they strike the men with blindness. And then the angels pull by four arms 
right? One arm over here clutching one of Lot's daughters. One arm over here clutching another one of Lot's daughters. And then the other angel, one arm here clutching Lot and another arm clutching Lot's wife, pulling them out as Lot lingers. You must get out. And because you are so weak and so stuck and so broken in your sin, I'm going to pull you out even when you can't pull out yourself. Isn't that good news for us? Even that part of us that doesn't want to be saved, God pulls us out. Let me encourage you too. If you see a friend trapped in sin, be like the angel. Pull them out. Don't let them stay so stuck in their sin that they can't get out on their own. Pull them out. Show mercy to them. But sadly, even as Lot is brought outside the city, he's still got some of Sodom within him. God lets him go to the city of Zoar, but as we'll see in a moment, it doesn't lead him to true and lasting joy the way that God intended. He gives him over to his sin again and again and again, even as God displays his mercy. Bruce Waltke summarizes Lot's story in this way. Lot tries to be a blessing, but instead appears as a bungler and buffoon. I love that. <laughs> A buffoon. I'm going to use that word next time I see somebody in sin. You're a buffoon. And then you can tell that to me. Scott, you're a buffoon, okay? Anyway, he fails as a host, as a citizen, as a husband, as a father. He wants to protect his guests, but needs to be protected by them. He tries to save his family, and they think he is joking. Afraid to journey to the mountains, he plays for a little town. But afraid of the mountain, he flees to the mountains. His salvation depends on God's mercy and Abraham's blessing. That's God for us. Four Oaks, what sin has, has, has so entangled you that you can't break free? Cling for the mercy. Cry out for the mercy of God. Ask for God to rescue you. Flee from that sin. The scriptures warn us, flee from sexual immorality. Warn us, flee again and again and again. Flee. Don't let sin grab hold of you. Pastor Josh, he preached in the sermon last week, and he said, you keep taking sips of worldliness, and pretty soon you find yourself belly up at the bar. Flee from sin. Because God's justice and mercy compel us to flee, we must flee. And also, if you find someone else stuck in sin, help them to flee, even kicking and screaming. Pull them out. Don't let them remain. Scene three, the judgment. Verse 23, and the key word here is warn. Warn. It says, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
Lot's wife. If you don't understand the context here, Zoar, God said, or the angel says, I'm not going to destroy the city until you get to Zoar. And so when it says that Lot's wife looked back and stopped, this is not just a momentary glaze. Uh, gaze, excuse me. This is, this is looking back with fondness. She stopped. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says it this way. She looked, she longed, she lingered, and she died. In an instant, she became a pillar of salt. And of course, we don't know exactly what that means. But it wasn't like her judgment was unique. She experienced the same judgment that all of the neighbors of Sodom experienced as well. This raining down of fire and brimstone. Sodom and Gomorrah wiped off the map. And we don't know exactly the locations of Sodom and Gomorrah, but some people think it's at the south of the Dead Sea. My wife and I have been to the Dead Sea. There's a reason why it's called dead. There's absolutely nothing there. Nothing can grow. Nothing but barrenness. Nothing but judgment. Jesus, in referring to this passage, gives a warning. He says, But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Sodom and Gomorrah is a warning to us that if we do not turn from our sin, we will one day be swallowed up by God's judgment his righteous judgment against sin and rebellious, rebellion against him. And for, for Lot's wife, it appears to be possessions. She was so pulled by the possessions that she turned back. She wanted to run back to what she had. But for others, it might be power or influence or sex or pleasure or pride or envy or greed or maybe self-righteous or we're trusting in our own righteous deeds and we look down upon those around us. But one day there will come a time. Often it referred to this time of judgment. It refers to a sun. As the sun is rising on Sodom and Gomorrah, so the sun one day will rise. And Jesus will come, judging all those who rebel against him. But he will also rescue all those who look to him. And so, folks, because God is both just and merciful, we must warn of the effects of sin and punishment that is coming. And we also must invite people to cling to Christ. And that leads to the last scene, the aftermath. Key word here is cling. And we're not going to read the, the whole passage here. It's a pretty somber, heinous passage. But here we find Lot in a cave. He's alone with his daughters from Sodom. His little excursion into Sodom has cost him everything. Home possessions, wife, reputation. Everything he had held dear had been taken away. But here Sodom continues to reap havoc upon his soul 
and upon his family. We're just going to read the last three verses. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, the Israelites would have read this from Moses, who's writing this, and immediately they would have realized they had heard of the Moabites and the Ammonites in the Promised Land. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, God instructs the Israelites not to touch the Moabites and the Ammonites because they are Lot's heritage. And Lot is a descendant of Abraham. But I also wonder if it's maybe a reminder of Sodom and Gomorrah to them, that this is the result of Sodom and Gomorrah. It just leads to more wickedness, more violence, more awful things. And the Israelites would have experienced the thorn in the side of the Moabites and the Ammonites for many years to come. But I don't want to focus on that. There is one thread of mercy in light of God's justice that just hit me so amazingly. Look back again at verse 37. It says that the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. So Lot is the father of Moab. And out of the Moabites comes a woman named Ruth, who gives birth to Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, who is the father of Jesus. I mean, (laughs) what? Isn't this just like God? God takes absolutely Lot's worst moment and he brings about rescue and deliverance not only for Lot in the midst of his sin, but for all those who trust in Jesus Christ. (sighs) It's an amazing display of God's mercy. You see, Jesus is the fullness of the mercy of God toward us because Jesus endured the righteous, full wrath of God against our sin, all of our sin, the worst sin, including even the sin of incest. Jesus bore the weight of our sins so that we could experience the mercy of God. And it is free, but it did not come cheaply to Jesus. Jesus paid the full debt. He took upon himself the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the full, just, righteous anger against himself so that he could freely distribute the mercy of God to all those who cling to Christ. And so while the reality of God's Justice is far darker and terrifying than we are often willing to admit. May we all see the light of his mercy toward people who are broken and weak and in desperate need of God's grace. So no matter how messed up you may think your life is, you are never beyond the reach of God's mercy. We don't know what happens after this with Lot. We don't know if he ever talks to Abraham The last word that we see of Lot is right here, and yet we know that that's not God's last word. God speaks a better word over Lot 
then God speaks a better word over us. For Oaks, because of God's justice and mercy, we must pray for the lost. We must flee from sin and all the consequences of it. We must warn those who are stuck in their sin and who are in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And finally, we must cling to Christ that all of our sin has been laid on him. This is good news. Good news that comes out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's pray.